Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. And I may still cough in your ear. So, together we're the ho- <laughs> together we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, available at all your finest retailers. Now, between the two of us, we have over 40, nope, over 50 years of homebrewing experience. And I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. Time passes, doesn't it? It does. And I'm the guy known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. So on today's episode, it's going to be a short episode today because we've got a lot of stuff to do, a lot of stuff to cover, and a lot of things need to be done out in the world. So we're going to go into the pub, cover some beer news. We're going to go into the brewery. We're going to talk about what we've been doing and what we're planning on doing. Uh, before we give you a quick tip, something other, and get you the heck out of here. But before any of that happens, please listen to the messages from the people who make the show possible. This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO, or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. The next generation of countertop home distillation systems is here. The all-new Airstill Pro from Still Spirits is a revolutionary still that will look right at home alongside your everyday kitchen appliances. This small-batch 2-in-1 distillation system operates in either pot still or reflex mode and allows you to craft high-quality light and dark spirits at home. No hoses, no complicated assembly, just plug-and-play. The Airstill Pro column cools itself with a built-in high-powered fan. The Still Spirits Airstill Pro is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer. Learn more about the Airstill Pro at stillspirits.com or check them out on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Sticking around and make sure that you patronize our fine sponsors. As that's, usual. That's patronize, not patronize. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> As usual, we are starting off with an announcement from Drew. Yep. So real quick, if you haven't checked your feed, go check your feed because we did a replay episode of the Guava episode with Masa, where Masa was talking about his Guava Goes. And the reason why we brought it back was because it turns out that Masa got a chance to pour the guava at the GABF because it was entered Yay. in the GABF uh, Pro-Am competition and did it with Arts District. Uh, didn't win a medal, unfortunately, but I know that it was well-received beer. So go and give that a listen, and you two can figure out how you can get a beer good enough to be poured at the GABF. And as a technical note for everybody who's wondering... Uh, for that particular commercial size batch, they did not use Masa's backyard uh, guava or his neighbor's guavas. They used Oregon fruit puree, like most commercial breweries do. <laughs> really, man. Yep. So go give that a listen, a replay of Masa's guava, and uh, go make yourself, it goes to remind yourself of 
warmer weather. And don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It's the National Disaster Search Dog Foundation. Um, these guys take rescue dogs that uh, probably aren't going to make it. They train them to be search dogs for disasters. And unfortunately, there's way too much need of that these days. It's a great organization, and they're doing great work to really help us out and help the dogs out. So please go to experimentalbrew.com, click on the Patreon link, toss us a few bucks that we can pass along to them. All right. And now I think it's time for us to go have a beer. I think so, too. You could probably use one about now, huh? Yeah, kind of scratchy. (laughs) Okay, stick around. We'll be right back and see you in the pub. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. The ultimate all-in-one electric home brewing system is here. The new Grainfather G40 can produce up to 11 gallons of beer and features all the latest advancements in home brewing technology, including wireless control so you can monitor your brew day from the Grainfather app. With an innovative new grain basket design that improves workflow, reaching mash efficiencies of 75% or more is easy. The 3300-watt heating element brings your wort to a boil quickly without any scorching, and the large hop plate filter guarantees that no unwanted grain matter or hop tube reaches your fermenter. Every G40 comes standard with a high-powered built-in pump that can handle temperatures over 200 degrees Fahrenheit and a full three-year warranty that guarantees that you will be able to keep on brewing no matter what. The new Grandfather G40 is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer or online at grandfather.com. Welcome back, and welcome to the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere, somewhere in cyberspace. We're having beers today, and Drew's going to tell you about his. Yeah, so I'm having a collaboration beer, and as you guys know, my local brewery is Wild Parrot Brewing Company, and they did a collab to celebrate their one-year anniversary of being in business, which is pretty rad. Uh, It's a collab between them and Cervecia del Pueblo. Uh, and, uh, Del Pueblo is over on the other side of town, 
So if we're over here while Parrot and I over in like the Lamonda Park, East Pasadena area, uh, Pueblo is all the way over on the other side of town, just south of Old Town. Um, so oh radic- sure sure now now I've got it pegged exactly. Yeah, well you know it's a I mean look it's a big area I mean that's two and a half miles away. Um, <laughs> and so uh, Del Pueblo, who I actually need to get Martine on the show and, and talk to him about some of this stuff, is very heavily South American influenced. Uh, so they're like one of their big beers is a mate beer, um, and you know a lot of different flavors uh, all around from South America. And so they did a collaboration IPA that they called Dina IPA, D-E-E-N-A, Dina, Pasadena. And looking at it, it's made up of pale, uh, pale malt, Vienna, uh, Crystal uh, 120. You know, there's your little, your, your little, your little bit of crystal, day. That's right. Uh, and then hopped, oddly enough, with Amarillo. Okay, that's fine. But then Nelson Savan and Mandarina Bavaria, which I don't really usually think of as being very IPA-ish hops. Savan maybe, but um, and what was what's interesting about the beer, and it's still on tap right now, both at Del Pueblo and at Wild Parrot, is it tastes very much like the IPAs that we had in South America. You remember, you remember that slight, like, there was just a slight construction difference between, like, some of those Brazilian IPAs that we had. Right. Um, so a little bit more toasty, a little bit more uh, prominent bready type character to the IPA flavor. And then the hops were, you know, fruity herbal as opposed to, like, you know, sort of citrus tropical. <laughs> at least at least from the ones I can remember off the top of my head. And so as I was drinking this Dina IPA, that was really my first thought that, that hit me was, this feels like I'm having an IPA. So just kind of interesting to see a slightly different change in some of the ingredients and the impact that it can have. And, of course, you know, who knows? Some of this is probably influenced by, you know, what I know about Martine and his brewery, and some of it's also influenced by the nostalgia of travel. But... That that was my sensation in drinking this Dina IPA, and uh, you know, I like it enough that I got a couple of crawlers to go. Hey, that's always a good sign. Yeah, isn't it? Now you're going, or I'm going from something new and collaborative, and you're going to something old and classic, which I haven't had in years. Yeah, well, you know what? And I had never had one of these, at least not in my memory. It's a Valdu Grand Cru. They're a, a Trappist brewery, an Abbey brewery, and uh, this is this is their Grand Cru. Let's get something straight right now. Grand Cru is not a style. Uh, it means something like great growth or something like that. But basically what it comes down to, uh, literal translation aside, is it is the best thing that a brewery, winery, whatever makes, right? They they consider it their absolute top of the line. So, boom, yeah, there you the, go. It's their top of shelf product. It's, yeah, look how snazzy we are. Right. So, so don't go thinking Grand Cru is a style. It's not. It's a designation. This beer... I just absolutely loved. Uh, we'll start with the fact that it's ten and a half percent, and it is extremely well hidden. Ten and a half percent. You don't get a strong alcohol note from the beer, although it's obviously there. It's a, a dark brown color, maybe some reddish notes to it. Uh, nice creamy brown head. Uh, wonderful. I'd say typical Belgian aroma, uh, if, you, if you know what that is. And also, it 
has these very, very faint notes of like cinnamon and brown sugar. And that's not to say that there's cinnamon or brown sugar in it. I don't think that there are. I'm pretty sure that's coming from the yeast and the grist bill. But it is an absolutely wonderful sipping beer. I waited until we were having a cold, rainy day here. We're just getting into that part of the year now. Cracked it open and kind of just sipped on it for about an hour and a half. Darn good beer. Um, and I intend to be picking up some more. Uh, fortunately, my local beer store uh, is uh, really good at getting beers in good condition and keeping them that way. So uh, I don't have a lot of fear about going back for another one. I'm trying to remember. That's what, like 10 and a half, 11 percent? Yeah, I think I said that. Yeah, okay. So I, I intended to say it even if I didn't. Yeah, so 10.5%, 11%. Yeah, that's definitely a... a uh, I'm sitting down and sipping this one type beer. Uh, <laughs> it's definitely not a smash and pass. No, 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 no. Definitely not. Um, but yeah, I, this goes again into like some of the stuff we've been talking about, like some of the disappearance of the classics. Um, I don't... I can't remember the last time I saw Valdu on a shelf near me. Um, yeah, uh, you know, and it seems to be something that, uh, that my beer store, uh, the Beerstein, has pretty frequently. But, uh, you know, I just I just had never picked one up before. And I decided uh, when I was doing my Belgian beer search in there the other day that it was time. <laughs> well, there you go. I mean, that, that was always, I mean, I think that was always been one of the more fun things about a lot of those classics and trying to learn a lot of those classics was that just that that sense of academic exploration I mean, as opposed to <laughs> it's, it's great i'm not getting drunk i'm doing academic exploration hey you know whatever, whatever you need to say right but what i mean by that is it always felt like i was learning something and it wasn't like where you go to a brewery or go to a retail store today and it's like, okay, which brightly colored labeled can of IPA am I getting today? Right. Uh, yeah, the here with a lot of the the classics and a lot of those classic styles, I always felt like there was some new lesson to be learned. Yeah, it really is like as much about the exploration discovery as anything else. You know, when you, you're sitting there sipping that beer for an hour and a half, you can really start thinking about how the flavors evolve on your palate. You can start thinking about how the flavors and aroma evolve as the beer sits there and warms up for a bit. Um, I admit there's a, a lot more to it than just drinking beer when you're, when you're having something like that. Uh, it, it's as much an intellectual experience or it can be as much of an intellectual experience as anything. Well, and that puts me in mind a couple of days ago, I think you shared something to Facebook about, like the the best beers that you have are the ones that are shared with friends, right? And uh, my comment on that was that you're not obsessing over and ticking, but sometimes yeah. you want to obsess and tick over something. Well, especially if you're doing it for yourself, if you're gonna like write about it on Untapped or something like that, you know, who cares? Yeah, the people on Untapped care. Um, <laughs> okay, I don't care. All right. Well, hey, from exploration and academics in the beer glass to explorations and academics. In a seminar format, uh, the Women's Craft Fermentation Alliance is bringing back WIBS. Well, I think this is, what, year three? I think so. Maybe even four. Yeah. So uh, they're bringing back the, the Craft Fermentation Summit is how they're referring to it now. 
Uh, it's online, but there is actually even a physical component this year with uh, like some pub crawls in Portland, I believe. Um, it's October 23rd, mostly online. They're going to have 20-plus sessions with over 35 speakers. And just like looking at the list, there are topics in there about non-alcoholic beer, mead, sake, beer, wine, kombucha. Uh, the one that jumped out of my mind and made me go, wait, what? Was uh, there's going to be a talk on naked barley, which <laughs> now and I really want to go naked barley, huh? Yeah, and it wasn't so much like the idea of like naked tea that caught my attention as much as like, wait, what the hell is naked barley? Um, yeah, so exactly. now I'm really curious. Um, so if you want to be able to go uh, to WIBS and you can again you can attend online, and even though it's the Women's International Beer Summit, it is open to everybody. Uh, you can go and register at wcfa.beer and there'll be a link to go to wibs23 and you can join there be really curious to see what the talks are like and uh what we can learn and what the heck naked barley is yeah i i I give up (laughs) don't give up there's never any time to give up (laughs) although sometimes the news wants to make you give up because there was an article posted in vine pair the other week that so look if you haven't been paying attention to the retail side of things there are organizations out there that essentially serve as the nielsen ratings for beer sales uh they obsessively track all this stuff and they can report back the numbers in terms of retail like irri and all that and vipair pointed out there was an article that came up that said that the two most popular uh ipa or sorry the most popular ipa in the country is voodoo ranger and so is the second and what they meant by that is <laughs> the top-selling individual beer, uh, craft beer uh, uh, IPA that's out there is New Belgium's Voodoo uh, Ranger Imperial IPA, which has been a brand that, I mean, what, I think New Belgium introduced that almost 15 years ago, I think, the original Voodoo Ranger. That, that sounds about right. Um, but as the company has pivoted over time and moved away from the Belgium part of New Belgium... Um, Voodoo Ranger has kind of become their leading brand. You know, Fat Tires sort of, yeah, rebranded, reinvented, yada, 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 but not it's not the main focus of the company anymore. So Voodoo Ranger has become this whole thing with a giant line of Voodoo Ranger styles. And so Voodoo Ranger Imperial IPA is the top-performing IPA amongst the uh, nation's, as they put it here, amongst the nation's craft brands in grocery and convenience stores. And the second place is Voodoo Ranger Juice Force Hazy Imperial IPA. <laughs> so okay, well, and and it makes perfect sense to me. Like you go into the grocery store nowadays, or you go into a convenience store, those Voodoo Ranger cans are placed nice and prominently and tall. Uh, they, their their big format is obviously the nineteen point two single can. That uh, right. I, I forget if that's a stovepipe or what people call that, but it's nineteen point two fluid ounces, right? Because 3.2 more ounces is all the better. Um, and I'm fine with Voodoo Ranger. It's not my favorite IPA in the universe. I don't get Juice Force at all. I tried it once just to try it and was like, ugh. Uh, but if that's your jam, that's your jam. I just think it's interesting that, okay, the top two IPAs are both Voodoo Rangers. And that Voodoo Ranger is from New Belgium. What happened to 1883? What happened to La Folie? <laughs> People didn't buy them. I know. People didn't buy them, and, and a fat tire became a biscuit bomb that nobody likes anymore. 
Yeah. Well, you know what? I actually had uh, one of the new fat tires recently, and it was yes. no, it was worse than it ever has been. Well, I, I haven't had the new fat tire yet. But so, like, what did they? Was it they made more pale ale? I, they made it more blonde ale, if anything. Uh, so, like, no, uh, no hopping, no. Like that sort of blonde ale, or just- it was it was to me it just struck me as very bland. And if if somebody out there is like into this beer, you know, I'm I don't mean to insult you. Uh, tastes are individual, and if you like it, like it. You know, uh, didn't do a thing for me. I, I liked it less than the previous version. Well, there you go. I mean, um, I'm trying to remember where where's Peter Burkhart now. He's uh- Oh, he he's it. got his own brewery, and I can't remember the name of it. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's right. He's got a, a Purpose Brewing. A purpose Brewing and Cellars in Fort Collins. Uh, and, uh, yeah, maybe uh, maybe instead of worrying about New Belgium, we go to Purpose Brewing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. Okay. Well, and Peter, by the way, is one of those nice guys that you can learn a lot from. So always, always good to think about that. Now, speaking of learning, Denny, yes. help me understand this chemistry. <laughs> yeah, you help me too. We'll, we'll help each other. Uh, there has been some research on linalool. As you may know, linalool is uh, one component of hops. It's actually one of my favorite ones. As I recall, it's uh, responsible for a lot of the, the citrus nature in hops, stuff like that. Um, and there had been a study previously about how linalool affects the evolution of beer flavor and aroma during storage. There are two types of linalool. There's an R-linalool and an S-linalool. Uh, both of them have the same number and type of atoms, but they're kind of like mirror images of each other. Like an, ice, so, an isomer, or I don't know if isomer is actually the proper term, but the same, the same idea. No, they, they are called, let me see, where's that word? It's some some word that, uh, like, entiomer or something like that. Uh, anyway, it's a word I can't pr- pronounce. Read the article for yourself. But the idea is that uh, during storage, uh, oh, yeah. Enantiomers, E-N-A-N-T-I-O-M-E-R-S. That's what they are, whatever whatever that is. If you guys know this chemistry better than me, write in and tell me what the heck that is. So the, the R-linolol part in hops is converted into S-linolol during uh, the brewing process and storage. The previous paper, based in 1999, had assumed that the odor threshold concentration of our linalool is about a factor of 80 lower than that of S linalool. So that just, they assume that our linalool has a much stronger influence on beer aroma than its mirror image counterpart because it has a much lower threshold of detection, right? But this new research shows that instead of like 80 times more, it's only really about 8 to 10 times uh, more, or 8 to 10 times lower, uh, the perception threshold. So, what does this mean for the beer you drink? <laughs> Darned if I know. And, and they didn't really offer any... any uh, 
suggestions about that either in this article. Basically, what it says is that that's going to contribute to a better understanding of how hops change during the brewing process and storage. And that, that could have some, some impact, all, you know, eventually. I, I don't know exactly what, but I know that, uh, Yakima Chief has been doing research into how to translate what you're smelling in raw hops into what you'll get in the finished beer. So maybe somewhere this research will tie together and give us a little bit more understanding of that. Um, at the very least, you know, it's like going out there looking for life in space. Uh, we don't know if we expect to find any, but it's going to give us a much better understanding of our own life. So there you go. There you go. And by the way, uh, another term for the antiometer is a optical isomer. So, okay. <laughs> at least that's easier to say. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting. I, I suspect this is going to be one of those things where it's direct impact on what we do as brewers or home brewers is minimal, but the impact as you just pointed out at the Yakima chief level is going to be much higher, you know, in terms of understanding what they can do with their products. But yeah, but I, I also think, remember linalool is one of our favorite chem- chemical compounds. It's the reason why Denny loves to do his cold dry hopping to maximize the expression of that. So right. always good to have these other little tools and little additional understandings. Um, so uh, if you have an idea of what the practical impact will be, please let us know. Because uh, I like practical impacts. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know if anybody knows or if this is just strictly research at this time. But, uh, you know, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how this kind of like plays into things down the road. Now, from little, little to birds flying south, uh, I had to include this one because this one actually kind of makes me a little sad. Uh, obviously, we all know the brewing industry is in a bit of a wibbly state. Home brewing is in a bit of a of wibbly state. Uh, Everything is in a bit of a wibbly state, uh, including my throat. Uh, But the Birds Fly South is a project in South Carolina. Uh, The the full name of the place is actually the Birds Fly South Ale Project uh, in Greenville. And it's a brewing company founded by Sean and Lindsay Johnson, who started off in Florida. They're good friends with Bob Sylvester, who's been on the show multiple times. Very sort of similar philosophy as uh, Saint Somewhere used to be back in the day. Uh, unfortunately, they announced that they're going to be closing the brewery on October 10th. And this is one of those ones where not only is the uh, the industry itself a little wibbly, but this is, it seems to be one of those things where too much expansion too quickly uh, or taking on a kind of a big ambitious project of opening up a tap room with a restaurant uh, and not being able to sort of recover. Uh, so... I'm kind of sad about it because Birds Fly South was doing some very interesting beers uh, and very much interesting beers in the the realm of things that make me excited, like Saison's and farmhouse sales. Um, but if you like that sort of thing, you might want to get yourself over to Greenville, South Carolina before October 10th. So you got very little time to go enjoy some more Birds Fly South. So, boo. Yep. Well, one of many. What can I say? Absolutely. All things must pass. Okay, I guess that about does it for the pub, so let's finish up these beers, head over to the brewery where we'll be talking about bizarre brewing things. 
When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. With Yakima Chief Hops, it's more than a pack of hops. It's supporting family farms. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned hop supplier whose mission is to connect hop growers and brewers. Yakima Chief Hops is proud to have an established return-to-grower program which redistributes an average of 75% of their business earnings back to the family farms who grow the hops in your beer. Where you buy your ingredients matters, and with Yakima Chief Hops, it's more than a pack of hops. Learn more at yakimachief.com slash return dash growers. Welcome back, and welcome to the brewery. We're sitting here amongst these stainless steel and bubbling bubblers, and uh, Drew is going to talk about a little history. Yep. So, as you guys know, I'm a big aficionado of history, and this month, October, is the time when homebrewing was legalized. Uh, this year, it's the 45th anniversary of the legalization of homebrew, uh, which happened, I think it was October 17th or 13th of uh 1978, when Jimmy Carter signed into law the bill that legalized homebrewing. And I know that this is my usual reminder to people that, yes, Jimmy Carter legalized homebrewing. Jimmy Carter did not know that he was legalizing homebrewing because the bill that he signed was actually this big, giant omnibus transportation and budget bill. Uh, And homebrewing is basically like two clauses inside this thing, uh, which is like somewhere around, I think, 500 pages long. Uh, and the real work there was done by Senator Alan Cranston and a bunch of California homebrew clubs at the time, including mine, the Maltos Falcons. And the work got, you know, put into this bill. And what it really did was it basically added the words and beer to the tax code. Uh, because at the time the tax code allowed for the creation of home wine for use by homemakers and for transportation to events about home wine. Uh, but when prohibition ended, they forgot to put and beer, uh, or they intentionally didn't put and beer. And so the bill actually added the words and beer into the tax code and allowed homebrewing to be legalized at the federal level. Uh, I also always like to remind people that this was a very weirdly contentious issue at the time, uh, to the point where there were actually another competing bill and proposal at the same time that Cranston put in the put in the work to go legalize homebrewing, there was another one put in by Representative Barbara Conable from New York, 
that was done in conjunction with the ATF. Yep, that's right. The ATF gave a damn about homebrewing back in the day. And it allowed a lot of the same things that we do nowadays, except for it also required licensing by the federal government and allowed for federal inspection by the ATF uh, to verify that, yes, you indeed were only brewing 200 gallons per year. And the real reason for that is because the ATF at the time was concerned that uh, moonshiners would use homebrewing as a fig leaf to allow them to to make their shine and go, but look, I'm just making beer. <laughs> so no, never, never forget that uh, homebrewing actually at one point in time was a matter of debate in the whole halls of the federal government. And now here we are all these years later, 45 years later, uh, and homebrewing is perfectly legal. And it's an art and a hobby that you should get out there and do and enjoy some more. And you probably are if you're listening to us. Yeah. Exercise your rights, people. (laughs) Yeah. People worked hard to make this happen. So make their work worthwhile. Get out there and brew. There you go. Don't waste their time. That's right. And speaking of getting out there and brewing, you're gearing up to do something fun. Yeah. um, Once I uh, got... The uh, trial 702 for Denny Kong when I was up at Hop and Brew School, I decided it was time to brew a batch. And I have a little vial that has enough for uh, 10 gallons. So I'm going to make 10 gallons of Denny Kong. Uh, I'm just in the process of getting my recipe entered into the software. Then I'll collect my ingredients. And uh, if, if, Fate smiles on me. I'll be able to brew by this weekend, and if not, then it'll be next week sometime. But uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna do some Denny Kong and just see how close I can get. And I don't expect to be real close, but uh, you know, if it just kind of reminds me of Denny Kong, that'll be close enough. So, are you gonna make any changes to it, or no? Why would I make any changes? Well, because when we talked in the in the past about like, oh, hey, you know. Maybe a little I, I more might, bitterness or I might kick up the bitterness a little bit, but because, you know, my system is different than Kelsey's system, mm-hmm. I'm I'm not real sure. You know, I, I I would be probably inclined to kick up the bitterness very little, if at all, until I find out what I'm doing. So but you know, you know how those last minute changes happen. Oh yeah, they, they always happen. It's like, oh yes, let's do this. Um, yeah, exactly. You know, or maybe I should try this after all. Well, and as you said, we we have enough of the the magical trial seven hundred two, or uh, I should say, we as soon as I get mine. Hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, we we each will have enough trial seven hundred two to do ten gallons worth of beer. Uh, and I'm still debating. I th- I think I'm going to make some tweaks when I redo this, and it's going to be you know uh, Drew's revenge. Denny. Uh, Denny Kong 2, Drew's Revenge. <laughs> uh, that's great, man. Uh, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll just kind of have to see. But uh, So anyway, when, when I brew it will be dependent on my schedule, my ability to source the ingredients. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to admit, I miss having that beer. <laughs> Oh yeah, <laughs> I agree, man. It was uh, it was nice to have some around for a while. Uh, it's definitely one of my favorite IPAs I've ever had. So if I can get something that just kind of reminds me of it, I'll, I'll be happy. Yeah. And meanwhile, this is also our reminder to go and uh, support Kelsey and and uh, over there at uh, North Park 
because that man makes some great IPAs. And in fact, I think he just took a medal at JBF. So wouldn't surprise me a bit. Would not surprise me at all. All right. So now we always bill the Denny Kong IPA as sort of the new West Coast IPA, the you know the modern take on a West Coast IPA. You know, modern, of course, and new, both being fungible terms that are sort of malleable and time changing. Right. And you and I had an event the other week. We did a Q and A with. Uh, the listeners over, not the listeners, but the, the readers over at Brew Your Own Magazine. And in fact, you guys will be hearing that before too long. And there was a whole question that came up about new versus old. And we had some thoughts about that, right? Because I, mean, I, th- I, th- I had said something about new, and, you, and I think you had an initial allergic reaction. I did, and I thought about it for a while afterwards about why I react so vehemently in discussions of old style versus new style IPA. And I think, you know, for my part, it's that uh, I feel like many times new is used to equate to better. Um, or, or that's kind of what people are, are implying uh, that, uh, that new IPA is better simply because it's new. It's not that old stuff with crystal Malden and stuff. And I, I guess I take offense at that because I think that they're both excellent ways to brew IPA. And, and so maybe it's just like a little pet peeve of mine and maybe nobody else had ever thought of it that way. And, I'm trying to to get myself to be a little bit more reasonable in the, the way I understand people using old and new IPA. Uh, and basically, I don't care which one you like as long as you don't diss the other one. And that's that's about all I got to say about that, to quote Forrest. <laughs> well, and it, it makes sense because, I mean, look, it's not – it's not just in beer where the new versus the old thing is, right? Because um, right. we see it all over the place. I mean, hell, pretty much the entire fashion industry and music industries are all based around, oh, the new thing is shiny and the old thing sucks. Um, but yeah, I think when I had said, you know, oh, you know what it was? I had said I, it was something was old-fashioned, right? And... Yeah. Yeah, it is weird because we do have sort of a knee-jerk thing about old being bad. And I think it's just because of how how that works in our society. And yeah. I never intended it in that way. It just meant that, like, oh, if you do this, it's going to feel older in nature, right? It's going to feel right. more like it came from that period, not this period. And so uh, to me, yeah, I agree with you. It's like old can carry – old can almost have a pejorative context. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And in the way that I was using it, in the way that I tend to use it, it's more descriptive and not trying to put a qualitative badge on something. Exactly. And, it, you know, I, I started equating it to uh, I once entered a beer in a contest and I got back uh, a comment on my uh, sheet that said that it had a dirt aroma to it. <laughs> It's like, okay, and I was I was really incensed. I wanted to go find this guy and punch him out. I've never actually hit anybody in my life. so. Uh, but, you know, and I eventually came to realize that he was just describing what he was smelling in the beer and tasting. Uh, it wasn't a put-down. It was just what was there, and, you know, 
it, it may not be a good description. I mean, uh, a positive description, but it is a good description. Mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of what I'm coming around to with old and new. As long as somebody doesn't go, you're drinking that old style IPA. <laughs> well, I mean, look, I I also kind of look at it from the point of view of, I mean, I like styles like mild. I wear yeah. a flat cap on the regular. I suspect I would be considered very old fashioned in a lot of places. Uh, and so I don't care. I just like it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, that should be the ultimate, uh, arbiter in any discussion of beer. Do you like it? Great. Yep. So I just thought that was funny. I would love to hear what people think about new versus old. Do you agree that old has a pejorative context? Uh, does it, does old automatically make something seem fusty and musty to you or, does old not carry that sort of weight to you? What do you, or is new just like make you feel rabble rousy or excited? Take your pick. Let us know at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. And now I think it's time for us to go. I believe that it is. We'll be right back after these messages. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. Get ready. This year's Learn to Homebrew Day is going to be a smash. Join the celebration on Saturday, November 4th by brewing a recommended smash beer. These recipes use a single malt and single hop and are perfect for experienced and beginning homebrewers. For the official Learn to Homebrew Day recipes, brewing tutorials, and a free brewing book, visit homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental. That's homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental for event and book offer details. Yeast's fourth quarter legacy curation features two legendary strains for autumn brewing, 1968 London ESB Ale and 1728 Scottish Ale. These yeast strains were isolated 30 years ago for our culture collection and continue to be brewmaster's top choices for traditional multi-European ales today. Both are regarded for their high flocculation and suitability for strong and seasonal specialty styles like double IPAs, smoked and barrel-aged beers, British bitters, barley wine, and more. Completing this curation are two limited-release lager favorites, 2000 Boudvar Lager and 2001 Pilsner Urquell H Strain. Available now through the end of December, Boudvar Lager delivers rich maltiness and subtle fruit notes while allowing hop character to come through in Czech lagers and German Helles styles. The Pilsner Urkel strain produces mild floral aromas and a clean dry palate and full mouthfeel for Czech lagers and Bohemian style Pilsners. Catch up on our latest blog posts and learn more about this release at yeastlab.com. Welcome back, 
And this is the final segment of the show. I guess we call this, what, the uh, third half or something like that? Third uh, half? <laughs> I, I mean, I know we were flubbing some science earlier. I didn't realize we were also getting in the middle of flubbing math, too. Hey, man, if car talk can do it, so can we. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Drew's got both the quick tip and something other for you today, so I'm just going to turn him loose. There you go. And on the quick tip, I can't remember if I talked about this before, but um, look, we all know that around a brewery, sometimes little flies are a problem, right? They get attracted to the smells of fermentation and the CO2 being produced and all that sort of fun stuff. And if you're not careful, the next thing you know, flies. So my little thing that I've been using recently, and again, like I said, I can't remember if I talked about this before or not, is these Zevo fly traps. And if you're like me and you're old enough, you remember the days when you walk into a place and they had fly paper hanging down from the ceiling. You had to kind of avoid this gross, disgusting yellow strip of something hanging down from the wall with flies on it. Uh, well, fly paper slash fly strips have grown up. They've gotten a little more sanitary and a little more uh, effective and convenient. And the Zevo traps, I think they're made by, they're made by like one of the big companies using a separate brand, right? But all they are is they're a little thing that plugs into the wall and it has like this bright blue light in it that seems to be attractive to flies. And it draws the flies in and there's this whole cartridge that has basically sticky paper on it. You know, and mm-hmm. it attracts flies. They hit that and they get trapped. And then when it comes time and it's full, you just grab the little cartridge, pull it out, boom, toss in the trash, stick another one in. And the between the light and the paper, it's surprisingly effective. Uh, and so to the point where before I had a couple of fruit flies hanging around because of, you know, fermentation uh, aromas. Right. And if I wasn't paying attention, they, they could get out of hand with the Zevo traps hanging on the wall or plugged into the wall, I should say, uh, works like a charm. And I haven't had a problem ever since. So, wow. Yeah. yeah. And they're cheap too. I mean, they're like, I think the starter kits like 10 bucks and you get two traps and you're supposed to change them out every, every week or two. Mm-hmm. And of course, if you're not having a problem, you go longer. And the refills are like seven bucks or something for a pack of three. So (laughs) they work well. They're a lot less uh, obtrusive and uh, disgusting than the old flypaper strips. <laughs> you remember the ones I'm talking about where it was like, like the oh, yellow yeah, yeah. curlicue? Oh, no. with the... I don't know how many times I've gotten my hair stuck in those. Well, you do have a lot of hair. Um, yeah. But much better than that, and they're even more effective. So highly recommended Zevo fly traps. You know, and while we're on pest control things here, I've had a, uh, a problem with mice in my garage also where I brew. Uh, fortunately, they didn't, get, haven't gotten into any of my grain or anything like that, but they do kind of like run all over inside my cabinets and around my fermenters. And I ran across these things called Grandpa Gus's mouse repellent. Yeah. They're little packets of herbs, right? Uh, you get 10 of them for, I think it's like 18 bucks or something like that. And so for a couple weeks now, I've been trying those. I cleaned everything up really thoroughly first so I could tell if I got any more mice around, I, I would be able to see it. And so I put some of these Grandpa Gus's mouse repellent uh, packages in my cabinets, stuck one into a hole in the wall where the mice had chewed through. And it's been, it's been two weeks now and I have no signs of mice. So, uh, you know, it, it, if you guys have mouse problems, it's maybe a good thing to try. It's inexpensive and, uh, I'll keep you updated as time goes by about how Grandpa Gus does for me. Well, and if I remember correctly, the Grandpa Gus thing is because I've seen those advertised. 
yeah. one of the other advantages if you're like us and you own cats and dogs and all that sort of stuff, they're non-toxic to yeah they're non-toxic yeah and the other thing that i like is that they repel the mice instead of killing them because you know mouse traps all that kind of stuff you know mouse poison uh you're gonna have to deal with dead mice i don't want to deal that i would just want them to go away (laughs) there you go yeah um and i will say they work much better those things supposedly work much better than the ultrasonic pest repellers that don't do a damn thing my my wife believes in those things to a distressing extent for yeah. someone who's sane and rational. Uh, <laughs> and we have a number of them around. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you, man. I don't think that they do anything whatsoever. Although her contention is always, well, how much worse would it be if we didn't have them? <laughs> okay. All right. And so from controlling pests to sandwiches, because you don't want sandwiches when you have pests around, right? Uh, and the something other than beer, because of course you can not just live on beer, you can live on sandwiches. Uh, I'm bringing to you all a channel on YouTube and TikTok uh, from a comedian named Barry Enderwick, who he, I mean, he does all the stuff that you would think, you know, cooks, he makes drinks and reviews craft beer, hey, craft beer Barry. Uh, but uh, he also has this channel called Sandwiches of History. And what he does is every day, uh, or at least every weekday, he posts a short one to two and a half, three minute video where he follows some old cookbook, usually an old cookbook, you know, so like a cookbook from the 1920s or something, and makes a sandwich from there and reviews the sandwich and then also pluses up the sandwiches uh, for a lot of these things. And so it's just really fascinating to see, like, because he does some modern sandwiches, but he also does a lot of sandwiches from the 20s and the 30s and, and whatnot, just to see the differences in sandwich technology and sandwich ideas. And he's really funny, and the videos are short, and they're and they're just a fun little history lesson and a culinary lesson. So sandwiches of history. Um, I will also say that one of the things I've learned is, man, we used to use a lot of butter on sandwiches. A lot of butter. <laughs> Yeah. And in talking with folks from Europe, they still use a lot of butter. Talking from people from Iowa and dairy areas, they still use a lot of butter. My mom, who grew up in New England, used to use butter on her sandwiches. Uh, I don't know about you, Denny, because you're in that in that wonderful mix of both generation and, and area. Did you grow up with butter on sandwiches? Oh, definitely so, man. My, uh, my mom's favorite after-school treat to give us was a slice of white bread heavily buttered with white sugar on it. <laughs> you just need the uh, uh, the sprinkles on it to have, uh, what, is, what do the Australians call that? The, some sort of toast. <laughs> yeah, like they're yeah. sprinkles and sugar and butter. Um, <laughs> but yeah. yeah, but then in my generation, yeah, by the time you get up in Gen X, butter almost completely disappears as a sandwich topping. The, uh, the only place I grew up knowing butter on a sandwich, other than, say, like a hamam bear, right, uh, right, is, you know, making a grilled cheese. That's it. You know, when I was out with uh, with Split Ends and Tom Petty, uh, I was one of, I may have been the only American on the Split Ends crew. Everybody else was either uh, Australian, uh, a Kiwi, or, uh, or British. And they kept asking me, why Americans put mayonnaise on all their sandwiches. <laughs> and I assume that that's because they were used to and expecting butter, but oh, yeah. you know, 
And by the way, it's Australian fairy bread. That's what I was thinking of. Okay. Fairy yeah. bread, uh, be- bread, butter, sugar, and sprinkles. Huh. Boy. <laughs> but anyway. My, my teeth hurt just <laughs> thinking about it. I know, right? Cavities. Who knew? Um, <laughs> but yeah, so anyway, sandwiches of history. It's actually really, really interesting short little blip of a day uh, thing. And just kind of fun to see, like, all the different uh, hot ham sandwiches and other things out there. A lot of a lot of canned fish. A lot of canned fish. <laughs> yeah, well, that makes sense. <laughs> so we'll include a link to all that in the show notes, obviously, for both the Ziva Flytraps and Sandwiches of History. And now it's time to go. Yeah, if we've totally killed your appetite, then I guess we've accomplished our mission, and it's time to get out of here. So uh, thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget that you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. I guess it's not Twitter anymore. It's X. I have to learn to say that. We're also on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Drew hangs out on the homebrewing subreddit and the Slack homebrewing channel. You can find me over at the AHA discussion forum and Facebook, among a number of other places. Don't forget that if you want to ask us a question, suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. And please, if you have questions, send them in. You know, we could like whip up another Q&A episode, but we need Qs to come up with As. And you can also give us a call or send us a text at 626-765-1AL. That's 626-765-1253. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. 